invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus, the Old Testament, chapter 20. We are currently in a series on the Ten Commandments, or the Hebrew says the Ten Words. And this weekend, we come to the Fourth Commandment, so we're just doing one commandment every Sunday. And this weekend, we come to probably what is the most controversial commandment today. If I had stood here 100 years ago and preached this, it wouldn't have been controversial at all. If I'd stood here 500 years ago and preached this, it would not have been controversial. Because of the cultural shifts and currents that have taken place in the last 100 years, this has become probably the most controversial of the 10 statements. And so we're going to dive into it without apology to see what God has to say about it. Just as a historical reminder, I always find historical reference points helpful As a historical reminder, how common Sabbath observance has been in American history. Let me give you a couple data points. In his magisterial biography on John Adams, David McCullough, if you've not read it, it's fantastic. Truly is. I've read twice now. Uh, He mentions John Adams, who, as far as we know, was not a Trinitarian Christian. Best we know, he was a Unitarian, which is not Orthodox. But when he had to travel, on Sundays, or when he had to travel, he was on a trip. David McCullough, right up front early in one of the chapters, makes the point that John Adams refused to ride his horse on Sundays to further his trip. He said he would just wait until Monday and continue. That is just a reminder of how common Sabbath observance was. I was reading a sermon recently by D.L. Moody on the Sabbath. He was preaching a series on the Ten Commandments, and he said in that, he refuses, he refused to take public transportation on Sundays because he didn't want to force anyone to violate God's holy day, interestingly. And then you might be familiar, if you're a little older, with the famous or infamous blue laws that restricted retail on Sundays, especially when it came to alcohol and liquor. And I was after the first service was handed this by Wayne Reese. He said, did you know in the 1950s, the Sears store downtown at Irving and Cicero in Chicago had a sign on the door. This is the 1950s. He said he saw it. They were closed on Sundays, and it said, closed on Sundays, see you in church. That was actually on the Sears store downtown Chicago in the 1950s. Now, the point is not, do you agree with all these specific things? The point is, Sabbath observance until just 50, 100 years ago, was extremely common in American culture. So the question begs itself, what happened to the fourth commandment? Where did it go? And how did the evangelical church today end up in a place where so few people really take it very seriously? And the answer, I'm going to give you the answer, and then we're going to dive in and unpack it. The answer, very simply, is the fourth commandment has disappeared under a tsunami of disobedience, busyness, commitments, cultural consumerism and extracurriculars, especially for kids. And it just became flattened. Cultural forces overtook it. And a key reason, culturally, this is interesting, is that if you look at traditional cultures or American culture back, say, 70, 100 years ago, 70 or 80, 90 years ago, people tended to value money over time. There were lots of reasons for that. 
In affluent cultures, it's the reverse. People generally value time way more than money. That is true in American culture today. And the result is that for the most part, people in affluent cultures scurry around at destructive pace and feel the constant pressure to squeeze in more and more and more and more, and it never ends. That is what's happened to the fourth commandment from a 100,000 foot level. So we're going to dive into the fourth commandment today. We're going to look at three things, the what, the why, and the how. Last Sunday, Cal Hebert filled in very well. Becky and I had a chance to finally listen to it this week. Very good treatment of the third commandment and honoring God's name. So with this one, let's dive into the what. And just to help pace expectations, I'm going to spend the vast majority of my time on the what this morning. And then we will look at the why. The why is not too difficult to unpack. And then the how will become our summons. And then I'll have a book recommendation at the end. So if it gets to be about two-thirds of the way through this sermon, and you're thinking, hey, the dude hasn't even gotten the second point yet, fear not, flock. Fear not. Don't try this at home without a professional, but fear not. I'll get us and land the plane on time. But I'm going to spend a large share of our time on the what, because that is where the exegetical discussion needs to focus. So, with the what of the command. Let's first, I'm going to read it again. Pastor Doug read it for us, but I want to read it one more time. Here is the fourth commandment, one of the longest of the commandments. And you'll notice at the very end of it, it is picking up wording from the book of Genesis. I'll get into that in a minute. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days, you will labor. So there is a command actually to work. That's interesting. A lot of people miss that in the fourth commandment. You are to work. Some of us here are a little lazy. We are to work and labor and be active six days a week. But the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. And now here he's picking up, Moses picking up wording from Genesis. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. That, by the way, is one of my reasons for believing the days in Genesis are literal 24-hour days, because here it picks it up. And clearly, he's referring to them as 24-hour days. For in six days, the Lord made heaven's earth, just like that. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, God blessed that seventh day, and he made it holy. So the what of the commandment is that God's people are called to stop one day in seven. You might call it God's maintenance plan for the human race. Now, the question is, why would Moses begin this commandment, unlike any other, with the word remember? Notice that. It's the only commandment that begins with remember. And the answer is very simple. The Sabbath shows up not in the law first, not in Exodus first. It shows up in the second chapter of Genesis. I invite you to go back to Genesis 2 for a minute. I already indicated that Moses lifted wording from there. That's very clear as you read Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Genesis 2, 1 to 3 Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are words written by Moses. He wrote the first five books, called these the Torah, or the Pentateuch for five. 
Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, or he ceased. You can translate the word ceased, stopped from all his work. Then God blessed that seventh day and made it holy because he had rested from all the work of creating that he had done or was doing. The word translated rested, I said, notice that word for a minute, Shabbat in Hebrew. If you go over to Israel today, you will hear that word, Shalom Shabbat, Shabbat Shalom. Usually it's said that way, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, meaning Sabbath peace to you. Most Hebrew words are written with three consonants, consonants three radicals. This is no different. It's just a three-letter word. They did not have vowels, but this one is easy to see and understand. Translates typically as rest, cease, desist, stop, knock it off, quit. I mean, that's, it, that's what the word... It doesn't mean Saturday. doesn't mean Sunday. It means stop day. What's the point? Here's the point from Genesis 2 and from Exodus 20, but especially from Genesis 2. The Sabbath, or you might want to call it the Sabbath principle, the one in seven, is a creation ordinance. What does that mean? It means that something God instituted at creation for all time. It does not show up in the Mosaic law for the very first time. Instead, hear this, young people hear this, it's reinforced in the Mosaic law. That's why Moses starts it with, remember, remember. It doesn't just show up for the very first time in the law. He's drawing on something that began probably, likely, hundreds of years before. And remember, it began way back in Genesis. So that means a couple of things. It started before sin entered the world. It started before the Mosaic law. It started before there was an Israel. It started before there were any Jews. Let's just be honest and fair. Adam and Eve weren't Jewish. <laughs> they weren't anything. As far, if anything, they were Iraqi, probably where the Garden of Eden was. But they weren't Jewish. They weren't Hebrew. There was no Jews. There was no law. There was no Israel. God started it and he modeled it at the very beginning of time. So what did the Mosaic law do then? Well, the Mosaic law given under Moses came along and added, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a number of requirements, other duties, and penalties to the Sabbath principle. And it became, now this is not a biblical phrase, but it clearly is a biblical concept. The Sabbath principle became a uniquely Jewish Sabbath in which God added a whole bunch of other things around it requirements, penalties, and duties. And then, unfortunately, Jewish tradition, unfortunately but not unexpected, kept adding to all of this. And so over the centuries, like cement, you know, on a, on a, on a wall, it just kept adding layer after layer after layer of other requirements and other duties and other penalties. And so what was the Sabbath principle, a creation ordinance, that became a uniquely Jewish Sabbath by God's design, eventually, after the centuries, became a suffocating Sabbath because it was just layered over with sediment and all sorts of regulations that were never intended originally. All right, question. 
As you look at Genesis 2 and Exodus 20, what does it mean that God blessed the original Sabbath day? And the answer is this. When God blesses a person, that person becomes rich with blessings. When God's blessing is on a land, that land becomes rich in blessing. And when God's blessing is on a day, that day clearly becomes rich with blessing. That's what it means. Another question from Genesis 2 and Exodus 20. What does it mean that, that, that God you know, uh, made the day holy? Kadosh in Hebrew. What is holy? Well, it means cut. It comes from the root word cut. It means different. So it means that God instructs us to set that day aside, make it different, make it a day of special focus on what is holy, namely himself and his works. If you take the two words together, bless and holy, we learn the Sabbath is designed to be a day for God's people to stop their routine, reset, focus on him, worship, and in doing so, God promises great blessing. They will be refreshed, they will be recharged, they will be reset, they will be renewed and filled with joy. Those are pretty precious blessings. All right, I told you you're going to spend most of the time on the what. I want to dive in at this point down another level and address a couple of the most common questions that come with the Sabbath and with this issue. I know this only because of pastoring for a few years. I even had people contacting me before this sermon. What are you going to be saying exactly? There's a little panic in some. It's okay. So fear not. Let's just go in. Let's see what the scripture says. Number one, I'll put the first one up. Are Christians still required to keep the Sabbath? The answer from the Bible is yes, but. Yes, but. You say, what kind of answer is that? Well, let's go to the New Testament. When you go to the New Testament, it becomes very clear that Jesus in the Gospels, I'm going to use the phrase, tweaked. That's maybe a light phrase, but he tweaked the Jewish Sabbath concept. He didn't abolish it. I'll get into that more. He tweaked it pretty hard. He especially was harsh in his criticism of the Pharisees who had turned the Sabbath into something that was suffocating and choking the people. If you want to put it in a little more imagery, the Pharisees had become like referees. So picture a referee on the field, say, in one of today's playoff games in the NFL. They're out there to do what? They have their striped uniforms on. They have their little flags. What are they doing? They're watching for any infraction. And as soon as they see one, what do they do? Right? Throw their, throw their penalty flag. That's their goal out there is to make sure everything's run right and throw penalty flags. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing to the people. That is not what God had designed the Sabbath to be. Mark 2.27, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And throughout the Gospels, I find it almost humorous that Jesus intentionally went out of his way, it looks like, to violate common Jewish Sabbath customs. Not the Sabbath principle, but Sabbath customs. So Jesus clearly ran head on into some of the legalism of the Pharisees. He tweaked the Sabbath. Then the Apostle Paul tweaks the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. Again, I'm talking about the Jewish Sabbath. In Romans 14, Colossians 2, he warns, this is important, Christians, 
to be careful about becoming self-righteous and legalistic when it comes to the Jewish law and traditions. And it becomes clear in the New Testament, there's no one verse, but it becomes very clear in the New Testament, that various parts of the original Jewish Sabbath, the legitimate Jewish Sabbath, no longer apply. Say, like what? Well, like the death penalty if you went out and collected firewood, or insisting on the Sabbath be the seventh day. Those were all Jewish additions to the original Sabbath principle. Having said that, hear this. Young people, kids, hear this. The New Testament never abolishes the Sabbath principle from Genesis 2, ever. It doesn't even hint at that. And again, the original Sabbath principle, one day in seven, was instituted before there were any Jews, before there was any sin, and that means that Adam and Eve were under the Sabbath principle. A lot of people miss that. It starts in Genesis 2, before the creation of Adam and Eve. And it even means Adam and Eve were under the Sabbath obligation, the Sabbath principle. They didn't know anything about a Jewish Sabbath, let alone the, 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 the suffocating Sabbath stuff that happened centuries later, but they were under the Sabbath principle. So the Sabbath principle happened before any Jews, before any Jewish law. It's universal. That's the point. That's why in the history of the church, a lot of scholars, pastors, and theologians have made a, distinct, a distinction between the Sabbath principle from Genesis 2 and what became known as the Jewish Sabbath. It's why Jesus and Paul were critical of the legalistic approach that the Pharisees were taking to the Jewish Sabbath. What's interesting is that Jesus spoke quite often about the Sabbath. We'll get into that in a minute. He could have easily said right up front, doesn't apply anymore. He never did that. He did, on a number of occasions, spend time, we're going to look at one of them in a few minutes, clarifying what the Sabbath was and was not. And there would have been no reason to do that if it simply didn't apply anymore. I want to put a couple different quotes up on the screen this morning just to help us navigate this. The first one is from J.C. Ryle, John Charles Ryle, one of my all-time favorite writers. John Ryle, John Ryle, J.C. Ryle was the first bishop of Liverpool, England, where the Beatles hail from. But this was way back in the 1800s when Liverpool first became a diocese. J.C. Ryle became the very first Anglican bishop. He became a prolific writer and a very powerful preacher, and a very respected and prominent bishop in the Anglican church. Very conservative biblically. In one of his books, Knots Untied, I love this, it's just, Knots Untied meaning thorny, difficult, controversial issues uh, addressed biblically. It's, a, it's an interesting book. He has a whole chapter on the Sabbath, probably one of the all-time best chapters I've ever read on the Sabbath. And then there's this paragraph, I thought, where he just nailed it so well. For my own conviction, my own firm conviction is that the observance of the Sabbath day is a part of the eternal law of God. It was not a mere temporary Jewish ordinance. I find Jesus speaking 11 times on the subject of the Sabbath, but here's it, it is always to correct the superstitious additions which the Pharisees had made to the law of Moses about observing it. Please notice the last sentence, last phrase. Jesus no more abolishes the Sabbath than a man destroys a house when he cleans off the moss or weeds from its roof. Close quote. Especially pertinent in England where you had thatch roofs, 
And if you've ever been to England and seen the thatch roofs and all the junk that grows on them, you have to clean it off every so often. That's his illustration. Just because you clean all that off doesn't mean you don't, you know, you, you, you get rid of the house, you get rid of the roof, you leave all that in place, you just get rid of all the additional accumulation. He said that's what Jesus was doing the Sabbath. Interestingly, John Ryle, Charles Ryle, he loved his father, esteemed him. His father, he says, was a very committed Christian and businessman, but he worked seven days a week for years and then eventually went bankrupt and lost everything. And J.C. Ryle, with great affection in that chapter, talks about he is convinced that looking at his dad and what happened, that his dad's financial downturn and eventually financial ruin was God's discipline on his father for years of Sabbath breaking and Sabbath violation. He says it with heartfelt conviction, but he says, nonetheless, I am convinced because my dad would not stop one day in seven that God eventually disciplined him and took his money away. I'm going to put one other quote up. You probably never heard of this guy, Robert Gaffin. He's a professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary out in Philadelphia. You know, when you're doing sermon prep, just like probably when you're making a movie, a lot more ends up on the editing floor. You know, this well, Cal, Cal shaking his head. Yeah, you got all this stuff on the editing floor, and very little of it actually makes its way into the sermon. And there's, you know, there's so many good nuggets. And so I, one of them I, I like, kind of picked back up and like, I need to put this in the sermon. You've probably never heard of, of uh, Robert Gaffin, but this paragraph just, it painted such a hope-filled picture of what the Sabbath was designed for. The weekly rest day faithfully kept by the church is a concrete witness to a watching world that believers are not enslaved in the turmoil of an impersonal, meaningless historical process, but look with confidence to sharing in the consummation of God's purposes for the creation. I love this last part. Sabbath keeping is a witness that there does indeed remain a future Sabbath rest for the people of God, and the Sabbath is there each week or each Sunday as a constant reminder to the church that the new heavens and earth to come will arrive with a splendor and glory beyond our present comprehension. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That every week, once a week, God designed and built in creation for His people to stop. And part of that is a witness to a hurting, lost world. We're not bondage to the, to, the, you know, to, the, to the grind wheel. We stop because we trust in the providence of a God who is in control and not us. And it's a reminder of what we're looking for in the eternal Sabbath rest. And hence, the value of one day in seven. All right, another quick question. Which day is it? You still have groups, Seventh-day Baptists, Seventh-day Adventists, who still worship on Saturday. Is that wrong? Well, it's very clear in the New Testament, you don't have to read very far, that the Sabbath day was switched from Saturday to Sunday. Again, Shabbat does not mean Saturday. It doesn't mean Tuesday or Wednesday. It means stop. And the stop day shifted after the resurrection of Christ <clears throat> to Sunday. In fact, right early on in the book of Acts, you already see it shifting. And so here's what we don't see in Acts. We do not see the early church or the early Christians observing and keeping the Jewish Sabbath. We don't see it. We do see Jesus preaching in synagogues on Sabbath, on Saturday. But once Acts begins, <clears throat> they're still honoring a day but it shifts to Sunday. And instead of 
observing a Saturday Jewish Sabbath, the early church in Acts begins to, we see them observing a very joyful, robust celebration on the first day of the week and on Sunday. So somebody like John Calvin, 1,500 years later, said, on the Lord's Day, here's what we're called to do. Worship as a community, cease from our labor, and find spiritual rest in Christ. Westminster Confession. Let me put up one more quote from the 1640s. Very helpful. Chapter 21 of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. The Westminster Confession is a very um, informative document used in the life of the church. We look to it here even. It's not infallible. It's not inerrant. But it is a very historically and biblically accurate portrayal of the Christian faith. We like it. Doesn't mean it says everything perfectly, but it does capture biblical teaching remarkably well. And in this particular chapter 21 of religious worship of the Sabbath day, in his word, God has commanded all men in every age to keep one day in seven holy unto him as the Sabbath. Since the resurrection of Christ, it has been changed to the first day of the week called the Lord's day in scripture and is to be continued until the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Having said that, let me add, because the new covenant, I think all of us would say, is intrinsically more flexible than we would say the old covenant was, it's interesting in some very Muslim cultures today, not all, but there are a few, where the whole culture has shifted because of the Muslim day of prayer on Fridays, that the churches that meet in those cultures, those countries, meet on Friday. And Friday has actually become the Lord's Day, so to speak, for those churches. So I'll give you an example. Several years ago, Becky and I were invited to spend part of a summer as an interim pastor and wife at a fairly large congregation in Saudi Arabia. And it was like 30 different nationalities. It was a very exciting place to worship. Big congregation, about 600 people. And we met every week. But when we arrived, we realized the whole culture revolved around Friday was Sunday in that culture. And so the churches adapted to that. And so we treated Friday. Friday felt like Sunday. Saturday felt like Monday. It was quite an adjustment for Becky and I because literally Saturday felt like Monday morning. Everybody went back to work and the Christians too. But Friday was the Lord's Day and the church treated it at that. So the principle is the same, having a stop day, it's not so much under the new covenant what day it is, it happens in Western culture here for the most part, our culture is still structured around Sunday, makes it a lot easier. But the point is, the principle still applies, one day in seven. All right, now I'm going to come to the biggie, because this is where I know everyone will go. Yesterday, Becky and I were taking a walk, and she says, you know everyone's going to number three, your, number third, your third question here, and that is... Well, what exactly is allowed uh, on the Lord's Day and not allowed? Well, let's, let's talk about this for a minute. And to do that, I want you to turn to Matthew 12. Because this is one of the greatest clarification texts on what is the Sabbath for and not for. In Matthew 12, Jesus is upholding the Sabbath principle. He could have abolished it. 
Instead, we have 14 verses here of clarification. And he's, you need to know this, he's slamming head on into the legalism of the Pharisees here. And he's cutting through Sabbath confusion and discussing three types of either, we want to call this work or activity, that are legit, valid on the Sabbath. So let's look at them. I call these works of necessity, works of ministry, works of mercy. So first of all, Jesus is very clear. Works of absolute necessity are legit on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. The example Jesus used here is eating. Actual eating, feeding feeding ourselves, which most of us would say is absolutely critical. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. That wasn't true. But this is where the Pharisees had evolved to. Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. If you look at verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Works of necessity, here he uses the example of just feeding our body. He says they're critical. Now, works of necessity are just that. These aren't large umbrellas in which we can try to fit everything. If, you, if we're trying to do that, we're missing the point of the command and the gift. These are, he's talking here about things that are absolutely critical for survival. This is not a loophole to squeeze in all of my leftover chores from the week that I didn't get done. It's a recognition that certain aspects of life are absolutely critical even on the Lord's Day. And, and, and I've read a number of very strong proponents of the Sabbath that said something like this. This might even include Christians serving in fields like the medical field or the police or firefighters, stuff that we, none of us would want to see all suspended on, on Sunday. That would not be good. So this is not an open license, but it is, Jesus saying, there are things that are absolutely mission critical to survival that are legit but it's limited. Second thing he says are works of, of, of ministry. I actually had a young lady after the first service, great question. She said, well, now you're a pastor. You're working on Sunday. How's that work? I said, Matthew 12, 5. Oh, what's Matthew 12, 5? Very interesting how Jesus words this. Or haven't you read in the law that the priest on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath? Pause right there. I am desecrating the Sabbath and yet are innocent. Why? Because somebody had to lead the thing. Somebody had to lead the people. And so Jesus said works of ministry are legit on the Sabbath. You could start, I've heard people justify all kinds of things under ministry. That's not his point again point is not, not to take all this stuff and stretch it beyond any recognition. It misses the command. It misses the gift. It misses the joy of the Sabbath. And for those of you discipling your kids and grandkids, you're going to lead them astray if you just start showing them that, well, these, these are so elastic, they really don't mean anything. They do mean something. These are important. So works of absolute necessity, Jesus said are legit. 
works of absolute you know, ministry, and works of mercy. Verses 9 to 14. This is interesting. Now, and let me add before I read this once again. If the Sabbath was totally abolished, why these 14 verses even clarifying all this stuff? He would have just said, it doesn't apply anymore. Chill out. Move on. He doesn't. Going from that place, he went into the synagogue. A man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him. Now, this is a gotcha question. Is it lawful to heal on Shabbat? He said to them, well, if any of you has a sheep and it falls in a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, again, I've heard people say and justify all kinds of things under the rubric of, well, it's good, so I can do that. I, you know, it's good to get all my leftover stuff done so that Monday isn't going to hit me like a tidal wave, so it's good. Well, that's not how he's using the word good here. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This is good for somebody else. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Notice what Jesus didn't do. He didn't roll out a list of 261 do's and don'ts. He didn't do that. He instead said, yes, there are things legit, works of necessity, absolute necessity, works of ministry, works of mercy. Now, what's the bottom line? Here's the bottom line. And I borrowed this phrase from John Piper. I found a sermon he preached on the Sabbath back from 1985, and it was a masterpiece. It says basically the kind of things I'm saying. He did it in a different route than I'm doing this morning. But at one point, he used this phrase. Jesus didn't come to abolish the Sabbath, but to dig it out from under a mountain of legalistic sediment. I thought, that nails it well. That says it really well. Legalistic sediment that had accumulated not only from the Mosaic law, but especially Jewish tradition and the rabbinical tradition. Jesus was showing us Sabbath was designed for our benefit. That means it's not only a command, it's a gift. Young people, front, back, Middle, sides, it's a gift and it's a command. And that means this. If I'm sitting here and I'm still asking, yeah, but how much can I fit in on the Sunday? You don't get it. I don't get it. If that's my question, yeah, well, what, what about? You? I don't get it then. And I am completely missing what God instituted in Genesis 2 that is designed to be a blessing on my family, on myself, on my marriage, on my finances. God's blessing is a broad umbrella. All right, now, I told you, don't freak out. We're right where we need to be for the why, and then the how will be our summons. Why did God give the fourth commandment? I don't need to spend a lot of time on this because it's pretty obvious. Two reasons in the Bible. One, rest. Second, worship. I'm going to talk about rest the most, because the worship one, I think, is pretty obvious. God gave the fourth commandment for a big reason, and that is rest and maintenance. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, Americans, 
are exhausted. A lot of you look exhausted. You do. It's an exhausting culture to be in. It's exhausting to slog through. Living is just, in and of itself, not easy. And God never intended for us to go seven days a week all the time. It's suicidal. It's crazy. And it leads to destructive things. Depression rates are increasing. We live in a culture that is literally disintegrating. And the results are everywhere. In families, marriages, individuals, and children. The Sabbath is designed to give God's people a desperately needed reset every week. A break and a reset. Many Christians, the irony is many Christians don't stop because they don't feel they have time to stop. That's the trap some of you are in this morning. That's the trap that I've gotten into before. In fact, many Christians who are even maybe trying to honor the Lord's Day a little bit are, start trying to uh, finish chores that were on their normal to-do list on the Sunday under the rubric of, well, I enjoy them. Isn't it for what I enjoy? Sure, I enjoy chores and homework and shopping and getting all this stuff done. Come on. I mean, I enjoy vacuuming too, but that, that's not the point. <laughs> that's my job every Saturday, to clean our bathroom and clean our bedroom. That's not the point. That misses the, that misses the spirit and the letter of, of the law. Sabbath stands, hear this, as a declaration of God's sovereignty over time and our use of time. You want to know what Sabbath is? It's the gift of margin. Not margarine. <laughs> if you're under 30, you don't even know what margarine is. Or oleo. Remember oleo? Remember the white stuff? You colored it with uh, toxic waste. Uh, it's the gift of margin, a word that we don't really know or understand in Western culture. The fact that God calls this gift holy, Genesis 2, Exodus 20, means it's a day that should look different than every other day of the week. That's the whole point. Our kids growing up love Sundays. They love Sundays. As they got to be preteens and teens, no homework, no chores, church, worship, come home, watch the Detroit Lions get beat, and then we'd go on with our day. Lions did better this year. But the point is, they knew the day was completely structured differently than the rest of the week. And if you would have interviewed them as teenagers, ask them today, they will tell you they loved Sunday in our home. It was restful. It was peaceful. And you could tell for them emotionally, psychologically, physically, it reset them. And it was beautiful. And I think part of the beauty was God's blessing on our obedience in honoring the Sabbath day. Let me put a quote up from Charles Spurgeon, again, one of my favorite guys, and he nailed it. This is a sermon he wasn't really addressing Sabbath, but on a morning sermon on June 8, 1873, he got into the whole concept of our schedule, and then he mentions Sabbath. June 8, 1873, Chuck Spurgeon, downtown London, to 6,000 people. We are in too much hurry. This is back in London. 1873. We're in too much hurry. Christians can't rush at this pace without serious injury to themselves. 
The Sabbath day is the greatest safeguard for the sanity of merchants and businessmen. Those who break the Sabbath and bring business cares into their one day in seven act a suicidal part. Close quote. I, find, I try to read Spurgeon sermons quite regularly as one of my spiritual routines. I'm amazed at how often he talks about the Sabbath with his very urbane, large, metropolitan congregation there in London on a regular basis. He didn't hold back as he challenged them to step into the command of it, the obedience of it, and the blessing and the joy of it. And then the second reason God instituted it was worship. That's obvious. True Christians are commanded. There's nothing like getting together with other believers in a live setting and worshiping, whether it's 20 people, 200 people, 2,000 people. There's something very powerful when a group gets together and sings and does liturgy and scripture and sacrament and prayer and preaching together. It's powerful. You just can't get it online. You can't get it watching a delayed thing. There's nothing that can replace the in-person element. And you get to Malachi 2.15 and it says God is seeking godly offspring. Well, one of, the, one of the benefits of worship is it reinforces that for a family. Look at hit or miss church attendance makes for hit or miss Christians. And that is not going to be a good faith to pass on to our kids. All right, we come to the summons. Here it is. This is the how. Obviously, lots of ways I could have gone with this, but I'm going to nail it down to two. And at the very end, I'm going to do a book recommend in just a minute. Two things how, and I'm talking here to those who know Christ, you would say, Pastor Jay, I'm a born-again Christian. I'm not perfect by any means. I'm not. And I know you're not, so that's... But I love Jesus, and I want to follow him. Help me. What, give me some help on the how here, okay? I'm going to give you one of the greatest paradigm changers for Becky and I. A number of years ago, and we started more fully stepping into honoring the Lord's Day. And it is this. Honoring the Lord's Day takes work. It takes preparation, to be specific. One of the biggest adjustments we have found for ourselves and others who are now trying to honor the Lord's Day is the whole concept that Saturday has to look different. There's no other way to do it. We push hard in the child's household. Our daughter and son, our son and daughter-in-law and their kids are living with us right now. They're on furlough at the moment from the mission field. They do the same thing. It's crazy. It's crazy land at our house on Saturday. Why? Because we want to make sure we're getting everything done that needs to be absolutely done before Monday. Homework done, chores done, anything else that we can think of so that when we get up Sunday morning, one of the very first things Becky and I will often say to each other, she said it this morning, Sabbath, Sabbath. I woke up out of this weird dream. I'm like, Sabbath. oh, yeah, Sabbath. I love those words. Shabbat, today is stop day. It takes work. You have to structure and push harder on Saturday. Moms and dads, if you want to honor the day as God intends, if you want your kids and yourself to step into blessing, you have got to change how you do Saturdays. And it may mean some of the extracurriculars and sports got to be cut out because it comes down to what's more important. These are priority decisions. Ben Sass, who was a sitting senator just till recently, said, and an evangelical Christian said, on Sundays, for the most part, he unplugs electronically. He said that as a sitting U.S. senator at the time. Thought that's impressive because he said, "I just 
The world is fine without me, and I need to get off the grid. That helps me emotionally and psychologically to just unwind. I thought it was interesting. World Magazine, Christian Magazine, very good news magazine. I just read an article recently talking about Sabbath. And they said, we intentionally do not post on our website news on Sunday because we want to encourage our readers to take a break and desist. Lastly, so honoring the Lord's Day, Saturdays have to look different, non-negotiable. And don't worry if you can't figure all that out in the next month, but you do need to figure it out and start working that direction. And secondly, honoring the Lord's Day leads to great blessing. I want to close with Isaiah 58. I don't know of two verses that are more make you want to jump up and down than these two verses about the benefit of Sabbath. Honoring the Lord's day leads to blessing. Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. If you will keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you will call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, And if you honor it by not going your own way and doing as you please or speaking idle words. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, notice verse 14. Then you will find your joy in the Lord. There's a lot of joy-starved people here today. I know what it's like to get joy-starved in my own disobedience and stubbornness. I miss it. And when I find it again, I'm like, why did I wander away from joy? And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land. You want to know one of the realities is that if you, when you, if you, when you start observing the Lord's day, you will wonder, why did I wait so long? It's addictive. It's addictive. I'll close with something that's a little bit funny. Back to Charles Spurgeon, he preached a sermon May 31st, 1874, called The Eternal Day, and he mentioned something that I actually kind of laughed out loud as I read it. I was, Becky and I sit next to each other in our sunroom in the morning while reading Scripture and stuff. So I was reading this, and he said, talking about Sabbath, and, and he, he said something we felt. that On Sunday night, we both start getting, we, we call it a little bit of Sabbath day depression because it's like, oh, it's over. It's like time goes double speed on Sunday for us in the afternoons and stuff. So Spurgeon said the same thing. He said he gets to the end of Sunday, and he, he starts dreading the coming of Monday, and so he said, so, quote, I now desire a second Sabbath. And I immediately thought of Lord of the Rings. Huh? You with me? Huh? Yeah? Pippin? Pippin? They're walking down, you know, and says to Aragorn, hey, when are we having breakfast? Aragorn turns around and says, we already had breakfast. And then Pippin says, what? Well, what about second breakfast? And Mary leans over and says, Pip, I don't think he knows about second breakfast. Second Sabbath. Maybe someday we'll have second Sabbath. A second day in a row. In a row. But I thought, that, 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 gets to the, that gets to the heart of it. Sabbath is a day, ladies and gentlemen, young people, when we trust the world will get along just fine without us. I'm going to give one book recommendation. The elders are actually reading this book. We just started 24 6. Let me tell you why I like this book so much. Matthew Sleeth is a physician, medical doc. And what's especially interesting, he's a very good writer, he's very articulate, and he's funny in the book. I found that interesting. And 
He wrote, not, he didn't write, he started keeping the Sabbath before he got saved. Before he was even a Christian. You know why? Because in his medical practice, he saw that Jews or Christians or those that kept the Sabbath for some reason were healthier physically and emotionally. And he realized going seven days a week, especially as a medical doctor, was nuts and was, he was just fragmenting. And so even before he got saved, he's, he's very open to the book, before I became a Christian, I started blocking out one day among seven. He said, I found myself suddenly starting to flourish again. Then he got saved. And then he wrote the book. Great book. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. Becky and I have read it, and currently our elders are going through it. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing. Father, I, do, I want to thank you for our congregation and other gospel preaching churches in our area. Thank you for Good News Church in Woodstock. Thank you for other pastors and leaders. The gift of, of the church is such a precious thing on the Lord's Day. So as we sing right now, may we sing, if we know Christ, as redeemed people who are joyful on the Lord's Day to do what you have commanded us to do. And for those who are not keeping Sabbath, that you would convict them of their sin and lead them into joy and blessing as they step into observing this wonderful day. In Jesus' name.